Morning all. As the time is now 9.30 in Brisbane, I will commence the presentation. Now, before we commence, I'd like to start with an acknowledgement of country to pay respect to the traditional owners of the land. I acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the first Australians and traditional custodians of the lands where I live, learn and work. I pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Good morning all, and thank you for joining Domino's Pizza Enterprises' half-year results presentation. You're joined this morning by members of the leadership team from across Australia, New Zealand, Europe and Asia. And we're going to start the presentation hearing from Don May, our Group CEO and Managing Director. Over to you, Don. Thank you, Nathan, and thank you, everybody, for joining the callers today. Uh, before I get into the financials on page five, um, I want to just also recognise up front um, all the incredible team behind these great sales and store openings that we've been able to deliver in the last half and over the last couple of years. You know, our franchisees who have been so dynamic in the, the way that they've been able to navigate all of the continuously moving challenges. Of course, our team members who've kept um, our customers safe, in many cases, are delivering with zero contact. And of course, our office team members who've been able to keep our menus full, our stores supplied, our stores opening with equipment um, in these in interesting times. So, you know, it's their efforts that have delivered the numbers that you're seeing today. So if you come with me onto slide five, um, I'd like to highlight that in the, the last half, we grew our network sales by 11.1%. In fact, in constant currency, that was up 14.8%. Our online sales were up another 11.5%, and, and that's now 41% um, growth in, in over the two years. Um, we've added 285 stores specifically in the half, or 432 stores since the same time and last year. Our EBIT was down 5.7%, which we'll talk to today. Um, in constant currency, that was down 2.4%. And we um, were able to maintain our dividend um, as the same as the corresponding half last year. If you come with me now onto slide six, you know, Europe was absolutely the highlight in this result um, with, with really strong numbers. In Asia, um, we're, Josh will talk in more detail, but following the state of emergency, as we highlighted at the AGM, there has been a rebasing of our network sales in EBITDA. Still incredible numbers over a single year, two or three year basis. Um, the accelerated corporate store network in Japan has resulted in some margin compression as, you know, 208 stores are immature in the last 36 months. Um, but, you know, saying all of that, still really incredible sales. Um, our EBIT up over 70% pre the pandemic. Uh, so some, some ultimately it's a much bigger business and a much stronger business than it was two years ago. If you look at the Australian New Zealand business, um, we were we did have about an eight million dollar impact there. As we flagged, we invested in Project Ignite this year, and unfortunately we had a period of time where we had the New Zealand or part of New Zealand close, which had about a one point eight million impact. If you come with me now onto slide seven, um, you can see there that our EBIT growth on a, a two-year basis is up, still up twenty five percent. What's driving the growth of the ultimately the, the network is still digital delivery. Delivery across the business is in growth. And you can see there that uh, our digital platforms are now 78% of our total sales. You know, pre the pandemic, um, online ordering uh, for our business was roughly a $2 billion business. Today it's in excess of $3 billion. Pre the pandemic, we were a $3 billion uh, network. We're now past the $4 billion mark. So it's been quite extraordinary growth. And everything that we do at Domino's has been designed to be delivered. In fact, they're all our own products except for Coke and Pepsi. If you come with me onto the slide eight, I'd like to highlight here that um, 
we were able to still, in the first six weeks of trade, grow our business. Um, network sales up 6%. We're enjoying positive like-for-likes. We still do have a, a drag in Japan, um, but we do point to the fact that the Australian business in recent months and Taiwan and the Benelux have been um, had been in strong growth. But on a two-year basis, network sorry, the same source sales up 11.8%, and we're off to a good start this half. Where we've added 22 stores to the system, and we believe we're on track to be in around that 500 stores, including the acquisition of Taiwan. If you come with me on to slide nine, the positive uh, same-store sales of the network, um, you know, it should be noted that we are rolling these really, really strong numbers, but we're still really confident that we're going to continue to be able to grow with positive same-store sales and ultimately strong network sales because of the number of stores we're opening. If you come with me on to slide 10, it really highlights there that 41% growth um, in online ordering. You know, it, it is the engine room. It wasn't too long ago where there was rightfully so questions about, you know, in the age of delivery with, with everybody else entering the delivery market, would Domino's uh, be able to continue to grow? And I think we illustrate that we are. And even as I talk to you today, it's delivery that's fueling the growth where markets have, uh, have opened, but yet delivery is still where we're seeing our sales move. If you come with me on to slide 11, as I mentioned earlier, 285 uh, stores added in the half with, with Taiwan. This will be a significant half of organic growth across the business. Um, and David will talk about that with Australia and New Zealand, which we'll see a big lift as well in this uh, half and for this calendar year as a result of Project Ignite. If you come with me on to slide 12, you can see there that all businesses have been able to grow their network. Um, in sales, and you can see how we're smashing through the $4 billion. Um, I'll get Richard to talk more specifically about our investments in the CapEx in his uh, section. If you come with me on slide 13, we are actually giving you an unprecedented amount of disclosure here for our franchisee profitability, so you can see the ebbs and flows. Um, and we really are proud that our franchisees continue to enjoy stronger and stronger profitability, both um, from what they get per store, but also as our franchisees become uh, larger in size with more stores. Um, you know, 50% of our franchisees now operate more than two stores and a third of our network operates more than three stores um, as we continue to strengthen the business. They, as we reminded, they're our most sophisticated investors, so they're, they're the most aware of what's going on in our business and there is huge um, appetite to continue to grow and open more stores. So at this point in time, I'm going to now hand over to Richard Coney to talk about the financials in more detail. Thank you, Don. Uh, just moving to slide 15, Nathan. Um, as you can see on this slide, our revenue is in line with network sales uh, with growth of positive 10.2%. Our NPAT and EPS is down 5.3%, but positive 26 and 25% over two years. Also wanting to highlight that we've maintained our dividend at 88.4 cents, 70% franked, uh, which is up 32.5% over two years. Moving to slide 16, um, you know, as you can see here, uh, Europe is the standout performer with EBIT growth of 11.5% and over, uh, over the prior year and 33% over, over two years. Asia, although the worst performer on a one-year basis, down 17.3%, it actually performs the best over two years at 70.2%. ANZ, as Don highlighted, was impacted by Project Ignite of 6 million, 
and COVID-related closures in NZ of a further 1.8 million, which impacted our margins and, and, and uh, profit. If we just move now across to just a summary of our group non-recurring costs uh, of just over 3 million, they are split between the ongoing class action uh, and legal defence costs and also uh, advisor fees for the recently completed Taiwan acquisition. Um, a group cash flow. Um, as I flagged at the full year, we've had a partial unwinding of our working capital position due to the additional trading week, especially impacting Japan with, with, uh, with its large corporate law business. And as a result, just through that timing of when our year end falls, uh, our payables, uh, were down 3.7 billion yen or 44 million Aussie, which this pretty much explains most of the movement. So this is purely a timing and we, as, and, and it's sort of a one-off impact, uh, in the half. Um, also, you'll note we've got our higher net capex of 66.1 million, which is tracking in line with the upgraded outlook that we gave. So this is this is per plan, and then in addition to that, as you're aware, we have the Taiwan acquisition of 79.4 million. So all in all, still strong cash flow, just impacted by um, sort of uh, items that we've we've flagged in advance uh, or, or positive. Acquisitions and, and, and net capex investments, which is, in my view, a good story for the business. Moving to slide 19, um, just a little bit more detail of, of our capex and net capex. And as you can see, our capex, which recycles, which is investment, has lifted by 18.2 million, um, with gross capex up 24.6 million capex expenditure, including investments in new corporate stores, which is primarily in Japan, franchisee loans for new and existing stores, and also franchisee acquisitions predominantly in Europe and ANZ. Our cash inflows are up uh, 20% to 37.9 million um, with our continual franchisee loan repayments uh, coming down and also proceeds of sale of stores. Um, as highlighted in, in, in Australia, we've sold down a, a number of our stores and also in Japan that continues. Um, also significant investment in digital platforms, especially the new native ordering app and NextGen Olo with, with a planned rollout in Q4 of this financial year. Moving to slide 20, the balance sheet, um, uh, our net debt increased by 162.6 million versus the full year, reflecting um, predominantly for reflecting the cash flow movements I've already explained. Also worth highlighting, um, our current liabilities have increased um, primarily due to the put-call option reclassification from non-current of 172.1 million, noting GPE has the right to call on the option on the 1st of January 2023. Uh, moving to slide 21, um, return on equity and capital employed remains strong at 48 and 18% respectively. And also worth noting our net debt and leverage remain conservative, noting our interest coverage has actually improved, partially a result of the lower funding margins from our new 900 million debt facility. 
If we just move to slide 22, you can see, as already highlighted, although the, the half was down from an EPS uh, perspective, negative 5.3%, our underlying two-year CAGR of 11.9 and 10-year CAGR of 19.8% remains strong and robust. Um, and so on that note, I'll pass you over to Andre, who will talk to you with a bit more detail regarding Europe. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Richard, and good morning, everyone. I, I was sort of hoping this time I would be in the Australian market to talk to you in person, but I guess I have to wait another half a year to do that. Um, very pleased to share the European results with you and um, give you an indication on the question I get a lot from investors, and so what, what does the European business look like after COVID? And, well, it appears from here that we have to be living with COVID for uh, some time, uh, even though restrictions have, with a few exceptions, been lifted uh, across the market, um, probably earlier than in ANZ, and, and in some markets, actually, totally like Denmark. Uh, I believe that you can see clear indication of how we are handling COVID as it becomes endemic. And to me, the answer to the question uh, is quite positive. And if we can go to slide 24, uh, Nathan, uh, you can see that we've grown uh, sales over the last two years, it was 28.4% and EBIT with 33. But last half year, we've managed to uh, grow the sales with almost 12% and an EBIT of 11.5. Uh, on to slide 25. Uh, on this page, I'd like to highlight the online sales growth, which is particularly notable because um, we saw a return of carryout, not to the levels that we had pre-COVID. Um, and as you know, uh, carryout is not necessarily uh, the highest percentage of um, of online, and so it's, it, it, it's very good to see that we're still growing the online to almost 80%, which we hope to smash in the next half year. Um, and then on to network store count um, and slide 26. Um, over the last two years, we've added 198 stores in Europe, um, and although we had a slow start this year, notably, uh, we do expect a very strong, uh, strong year of store openings. The pipelines in all markets um, are pretty full. On to slide 27. As Europe, as you know, and I keep saying this is not one market, uh, closer look of some of the countries. Germany is rolling really high uh, uh, central sales over, from last year uh, when the delivery market uh, grew fast and still maintains uh, positive central sales, which is in, in impressive. France is seeing that uh, carryout is affected and um, where carryout pre-COVID was m m uh, from a customer base, um, almost 70% of the business sales-wise was uh, a little bit less, but um, we're seeing that it, carryout is slow to come back um, while we're holding some of the record delivery customers. And then, like Don already mentioned, Benelux, very positive uh, in both carry-out and delivery uh, same-stores sales. Um, and at this moment, I'd like to do a big thank you for all the franchise partners in Europe, the team members, everyone at the office, for opening stores at level above pre-COVID, for maintaining higher store profitability levels, keeping the stores trading and, and the team safe, and doing so while still serving the customers a, a better experience with better delivery times um, and a better product. 
And with that note, I'll hand over to Josh. Thanks, Andre. And um, so over to Asia now, which I guess is our newest region with the acquisition of the Taiwan market um, of 156 stores that combined with the organic 99 stores in the financial year shows about a 31% growth of our footprint in the region. Um, so we're going to move through to the next slide, um, and I'll try to answer some of the questions that I noticed coming through as well as we as we work through this. So strong network sales, 16.7 up. Uh, if you look at a two-year basis, 61.4. We were down in EBIT, um, but on a two-year basis, uh, up 70.2 or 100 uh, and oh sorry, 18.9 million. You know, Donna mentioned a, a rebasing of Japan uh, network sales thanks to the lifting of a state of emergency. Um, but true to our long-term strategy, you know, we accelerated uh, our store, you know, a store opening plan with 208 stores uh, or 208 corporate stores in the last 36 months. Um, this created some margin compression. Um, as we, and as those store mature, we expect that to be accreted uh, to bottom line. If you look at the bigger picture here, um, you know, in Japan, our footprint has grown substantially along with our market share, and that's really, really positive. We're now in 47 prefectures. Uh, we've in, number one in 23 of those prefectures, including the majors of Tokyo and Osaka. So let's go to the next page, page 30, please. A um, couple of things to pick up the page here. Uh, in line with uh, the other markets, online sales just uh, continuing to produce as the age of delivery really accelerates uh, in these markets. Um, and if you look at the, uh, the the notable chart below that, which shows the large amount of new stores in the network, which will mature uh, and become foundational to further growth in this region. So let's go to page 31. Okay, so two markets, for pretty similar stores per franchise. One we've inherited and one we've actually grown if you in Japan. So if you remember back only two to three years ago, this was around 2.3 uh, stores per franchisee. Uh, it's now up at three, three and a half uh, stores per franchisees. So what this chart's really saying is that we've got strong franchise interest and, and it's also showing that we've got a lot of room to grow with the population per store. Um, so expect, uh, you know, continuing records in, in these markets and continued store growth. Uh, in these markets through franchise as well. Next, to 32. Um, for those of you with me a couple of years ago in our Investor Day in 2019, we spoke about our strategy. Um, to me, this uh, it was a business that, you know, whilst bigger some of the, uh, than others than other BPE markets, I guess, um, you know, we really didn't have the right foundation. We had an immature foundation that just needed to be built out. Um, Appendix 10 really shows the good overview of what's been achieved throughout these years. And it's important to note that we keep expecting to execute upon this long-term strategy. Suffice to say that I, you know, I think, um, you know, through COVID times, we didn't flip and flop uh, and become short-term in our focus. We actually really thought about our long-term strategy and how we could bring the future forward through that. So that said, let's talk about some of our short-term performance in the market. Um, and I guess what's really pleasing is we've successfully created this regional centre of excellence. We're leveraging, you know, teams and resources across our network to, to make sure that, um, you know, we're producing a high quality products and services, uh, for our customers. Um, if we look at, uh, the behaviour 
uh, that changed through the state of emergency. Um, you know, it did rebase some of our stores, but what I what I really look at is for strength of the brand in Japan is our Christmas trading period. Many of you know who have been on on uh, on this journey with us is that this shows uh, really what we've what we've done and sort of the scorecard for all the work we've done in the business. And we did have a record Christmas trading period. And this is not just grabbing the stores that we grew in Japan and adding the sales. We actually had over half the system with record sales trading days. And that shows, uh, you know, the, the great growth in the, in the business and in the brand overall. Japan did build 140 stores if you look at the calendar year. And this is actually rolling over the prior calendar year of 101 stores. So 241 stores over two years, two calendar years, that is. And we, uh, we reaffirm our outlook uh, going forward for, for this, the, these businesses. Taiwan, uh, absolute gem, uh, high quality team, high quality leadership through Martin Stenks, uh, who, you know, 20 year plus veteran, veteran in our business. Um, we opened five stores in, in Taiwan, basically a, a store per, per month uh, of ownership. And, you know, we've got some investing to do in this market, uh, but this will only allow for further expansion and prime the pump for future growth. So this uh, point, I want to hand over to our newer CEO, uh, but not new to Domino's by any stretch. In fact, a 31-year veteran, Mr. Dave Burness, to talk about ANZ. Yeah, thanks, Josh. And uh, hello, everybody. I'm so glad to be here with you for the uh, first um, results announcement. As, as Josh indicated there, um, I'm new into this role, but certainly not into the DPE business. I've been with the business for 31 years, and I guess just by way of a short introduction to myself, I, in that time I've served in a, a number of different roles. Uh, I've, I've twice been a franchisee that's grown a, um, a multi-unit business uh, successfully and separated by a, a stint in Europe where we, when we first went to Europe, I worked in the Netherlands as the chief operating officer for our Dutch business. And over the last 14 years in Australia, um, I've run a group of uh, multi-unit franchise stores where we had uh, sales were about 60 to 70 percent above the national average, and profits that were double the average store in Australia and New Zealand. And, and I'll be hoping in this role to be able to uh, to bring some of that knowledge to uh, to other franchisees and and serve and, and help them to to achieve the same. So, but if we go to some of the, the ANZ numbers, Nathan, on the next slide, you can see that uh, for the half uh, sales was 689 million, which is 41 million dollars up. Uh, 6.4%. Even for that time, uh, down 3.9 million, which which looks looks strange because generally uh, in the Domino's business, increasing sales equals increasing EBITDA, and um, and that would normally be the case. And the reason for that in, in this case is two things. Firstly, we did have some store closures in New Zealand, as Richard and Don alluded to. Um, you know, the whole Auckland market was closed for a month. And there was also other spot closures with COVID. So that was an impact of about $1.8 million. And the other thing is that we've reinvested into the, the ANZ franchise business through the Ignite program. And that's been at a cost of $6 million. But, you know, we're very hopeful that that's going to introduce uh, more growth in the business in the 22 calendar year and beyond. So, Nathan, just going to the next slide. Um, we can see there... You know, a really important number on that slide is the online sales. You can see that even though we're a very mature market in Australia and have been online for quite some time, that that, that number continues to grow to, to H1, 22, almost 80% of, 
at 79%. That's an exciting number for me because as the age of delivery continues to unroll um, in the coming years, then online is where uh, most of the opportunity is going to be for sales growth. And the fact that we've got such a heavy presence in the online business and continue, continuing to grow shows that we've got a presence there. And we're also releasing a very exciting, improved, faster, better customer experience app uh, in 2022. So all of those 79% of our customers who are online are going to get a better experience this year. Uh, perhaps just going to the next slide, Nathan. Now, an interesting slide here is that um, if we go to the number of stores per franchisee, so so where is our our growth coming from with our franchise um, partners? It's in two areas. Firstly, in the six or more stores, you can see that that number has increased versus the two or three to five store franchisees have actually had a slight decrease on, on the previous year. Now, those franchisees who are six or more stores are generally our most experienced and veteran franchisees. Some of them are our most profitable and, um, and, and best performing. And they're the franchisees who've got real confidence in the business right now because they understand the, uh, the long-term uh, opportunity that exists. Now, the other number that's not shown there, you can assume that if two and three to five uh, store franchisees are slightly down, the other number that is up is the one-store franchisee. Now, the exciting thing about that for me is that those one-store franchisees, most of those have been store managers who have made the choice to purchase a franchise store in the last half. And, um, you know, that's one of the great domino stories, I think, that story of driver to franchisee. And some of those, you know, traditionally those franchisees have been the best franchisees. They're people who have grown up in the business, who are passionate, they're real dominoids, and, uh, you know, they're, they're the next generation of really successful franchisees and we've seen a growth there. Just on to the next slides, please, Nathan. Um, so we talked about uh, Project Ignite and, you know, we look at that as a way to really fortress the business in, in Australia and New Zealand and uh, particularly in those underpenetrated markets like Victoria and South Australia. And uh, what we've seen is that, over the last six months, you know, some of our really high-quality franchisees have purchased stores from underperforming stores, and um, you know, that really gives us a, uh, a platform to, you know, to get more organic stores opening in, uh, in the calendar year 22. Um, and in fact, we've had 58 franchisees that expanded their their business in H1, and 25 of those have expanded their business by more than two stores. Um, 19 corporate stores were franchised to existing store managers or franchisees. And, you know, as we've noted, that really gives us a, an opportunity to, to now grow in the uh, 22 calendar year. Now, if you just on to the next slide, um, you know, we've got a couple of uh, very senior appointments in the last six months in myself into the CEO's role. And uh, we've got a new chief marketing officer as well who's come in with a really, um, you know, with a really clear uh, focused on on our brand and and Adam Ballasty is the gentleman's name and he's going to be doing a lot of work with the building of the brand which we're really excited about. Um, one thing we did see was in Q2 we, we had some really strong profit and sales results. Um, in fact, in December we had 405 stores break their weekly sales record, which we've never seen before at any time in the history. We've been in business in Australia for a long time, of course, but to have 405 stores setting sales records is quite extraordinary and never been seen before. 
Uh, we launched a new range of pizzas called the Value Max range, which is really resonating both with customers from a value point of view because, you know, it's, it's in our more for more strategy and customers, then are making up well over uh, 20%, it's about 23% of our product mix, um, which means that customers are seeing those as really good value. But the other thing is that it's translating into profits for franchisees. Um, you know, we actually had a, pro- a record profit half for franchisees in that period and certainly driven a lot by those December results. So really exciting to see something that resonates with both customers from a value point of view and franchisees. And um, Nathan, just on to the, the next slide. Uh, I'd now like to, to welcome Marika to talk about what Domino's is doing in the in the ESG area. Thank you, Dave. Good morning, everyone. As you may know, I started about uh, a year ago, so I'm pretty much the, the rookie, dominant rookie today on this call. I'm the first uh, chief ESG officer for DP. I'm based in the Netherlands. Uh, as, as you know, it's one of our primary markets. I'd like to stress, however, that ESG is not only my responsibility, it's the responsibility of every person in this business. And therefore, I'm very pleased with the cooperation and collaboration with the board, senior management, and team members in each of our 10 markets. It's also not, ESG is also not a parallel part of our business. ESG is how, in how we approach everything we do. And as has been shared in previous ESG updates, in this phase of our ESG journey, we focus mainly on those four points you can see on this slide. First one is obviously to create a measurement and reporting framework because we want to make sure that we continuously measure, monitor, and assess the impact of our ESG work and report on our progress in a transparent and consistent way. We've released for this purpose our first sustainability report in August, and we intend to report according to existing ESG frameworks with our sustainability reports moving forward. Our second focus is to ensure compliance and risk management for especially our most crucial ESG topics, and therefore we've recently also reviewed and published our new business partner code of conduct, which applies across all our markets and is designed to ensure our high-quality business partners approach to ESG has alignment with ours. Thirdly, we communicate and engage with our stakeholders. In this first year, we've had many meetings with key external stakeholders and also had the chance to meet many of you, many of you our investors. We consider these meetings and the feedback you share with us crucial for the success of our ESG efforts. In my, in our view, stakeholder engagement is and will be a top priority for us. And lastly, we want to ensure that we have clearly articulated ESG vision and strategy that is aligned with our core business. And therefore, this last year, we've developed our ESG vision, Mission Positive 2030, we believe in a better slice for everyone. We've developed this vision together with many team members, including our franchisees, our board, our investors, you. We've also asked the customers for what their expectations are of us. And to make our ESG efforts better understandable, we've decided to refer to these efforts as Dominus for Good. And Dominus for Good, in fact, captures all the good we've done in the past and will do in the future. And Mission Positive 2030 is our goal for this. And this month, I'm happy that we've launched our Mission Positive 2030 ambition. We've done this internally, and later we'll share, of course, more of this externally as well. On this next slide, you'll see some of the most important progress we've made this year. Some of these achievements I've just mentioned, so I'm going to highlight a few. As you may know, in November, we submitted our science official commitment letter to the Science Based Target Initiative. And with this commitment, we want to ensure that our efforts are ambitious and aligned to the latest science to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. 
And for this purpose, we've completed our carpet footprint baseline measurements, as this will help us to better understand and we now know what our environmental impact is. The next step is that we're currently doing to develop an environmental strategy and a climate roadmap. We expect that this work will, work will enable us to submit our science-based targets this calendar year and then to have them validated soon after. Moving forward, we intend to, of course, report on these based on these science-based targets. But for now, and in line with previous updates, we're sharing our progress with regard to reducing our CO2 emissions for European supply chain fleets. And although, as you can see, our CO2 emissions per store have increased, this was done due to longer distances traveled to the stores, we're pleased to share that overall we've managed to reduce the CO2 emissions per kilometer this last year. This was due to innovations in our supply chain. We, for instance, introduced our first gas truck in the Netherlands. As you will know, as you know us, we're constantly innovating and testing other, more, even more sustainable options. Lastly, female leadership is obviously a top priority for us. Each market has a specific focus on improving gender representation in a range of areas. The board is also taking on an active role engaged with female talent in each market. In today's update, we've included a new category, as you may see, and this uh, is Asia, as has been mentioned before. This is now better reflects female leadership across our markets, including our newest market, Taiwan. We look forward to sharing our future ESG updates with you, and we're keen to hear your feedback, of course, uh, on our achievements. And now I would like to hand over to Andrew Bradley, our CEO in France. Thank you. Thank you, Marika, and good morning, everybody. Um, now we're going to start my role as kickoff as we look forward uh, as business, uh, the outlook. Um, we continue to navigate through these uh, short-term challenges as, uh, as we have through the whole COVID period. Uh, they are different from one uh, market to the other, but we uh, show the agility I think we've shown over this last uh, couple of years as we've moved through the, the pandemic. And really, um, I think what's been always the guiding line for us has been our long-term vision of this business. Um, and we haven't lost sight of that and we won't lose sight of that. And basically, that is still the absolutely our guiding line for the future to build this business over time. We think we're going to be moving into and we hope that we're going to be moving into the stage of living with COVID. And I just want to point out a couple of uh, important points as we move into that period. Um, both Andre and uh, Dave have mentioned the carry out business and uh, the importance of carry out does vary from one market to the other, as was mentioned by Andre uh, here in France, uh, it is quite a big part of our business. And we've, based on our HVM principles, we've continued to uh, develop and invent and test uh, all kinds of new great offers, which are, are value offers. And this is really interesting in the current uh, trading environment that we can offer these great uh, value offers to our customers. And clearly, uh, they've been responding well to uh, these different uh, things that we've been able to create and, and share across the different markets. Um, the second point I wanted to mention was that we're really excited about our digital platforms because we, uh, as you know, this is a huge part of our business and we're now in a situation where we're rolling out the new website, the native app, and uh, we've started to get this uh, launched in markets as we build up to the full launch in the next uh, months. Uh, and every sign is this is going to be very, very positive for our business. Um, and we, as it's faster, uh, easier to use, and the, uh, the experience from those people that have tested it so far has been very, very positive. We will be marketing this very hard, uh, which will as well, I was just a, as a slight warning for those people who follow us uh, on this side of the business, we will be marketing hard to get 
a lot of downloads from people, which will probably offset a little bit on the uh, on the web um, search. So just be slightly careful in analysing our business in the future, because we, as we market it, it will probably shift a little bit. But we're very very excited about this. is a, a key part of uh, the next uh, few months and years of our business. And I just finished on the aggregators. This is and has proven to be in just about all of the markets uh, a great opportunity for incremental sales. And again, in terms of our long-term vision, nothing has changed here. We will use it as the, the aggregators as an ordering platform, but in no case will they deliver uh, our pizzas. Every time your pizza is delivered, it will be by a Domino's team member uh, in Domino's uniform. So with that, as a kickoff, I'd like to hand over to my friend from the north, Misha. Uh, um, and he will continue to uh, explain where we're going in the next few months. Well, thank you, Andre, Andrew. Um, uh, I'm Misha from the Netherlands. Um, I guess living with COVID means that we also are facing cost pressures everywhere, whether it is on supply chain, food costs, whether it is on energy, or whether it is on labor, because uh, labor is getting scarcer and therefore more expensive. But we at Domino's remain to be focused on delivering great value to our customers, and we continue to act according our value equation. So Domino's chooses to respond to cost pressures with the customer-first approach. And it means that we are balancing uh, the value equation by giving more for more. And our natural response might have been that we would have with the cost pressure, uh, risen uh, prices to our customers. But we have convinced our, our franchisees that we shouldn't. So what we've done side by side with our franchisees is added menu options, uh, so bundles, sizing offerings, or extra toppings that were both a win for our customers and a win for store unit economics. And this might be uh, adding chicken to our menu for example, the crunchy chicken, which is already added in a couple of markets and which is taking an 8% share of our sales or um, offering a bigger crust with more toppings and then at a slightly, a slightly higher price. So said that um, value is at the heart of high volume mentality, increased sales and increased operational efficiencies because that helps us to work more efficient and uh, um, face cost uh, pressure, like, for example, using the kiosk in our store or using new GPS or uh, the inventory app that will deliver value for our franchisees and for our customers. So that's a win-win, I guess. Having said that, I would like to hand over to Stoffel uh, in Germany. Thank you, Misha. Um, I'm Stoffel, the CEO for Germany. And I'm um, really happy to talk to you this morning, since these are very exciting times for us. It's over 60 years ago now that Mr. Monahan opened the very first Domino store, with his vision being delivery. Everything we ever done has been delivery. Mr. Monahan focused on 30-minute delivery, and after that there's been a lot of innovation coming from Domino's uh, that have basically changed the delivery industry. And where we are today... The future of our whole category is delivery. If you look in the streets today in bigger cities in Europe, you'll see the number of delivery drivers out, not just for QSRs, but for restaurants and also for grocery deliveries. And with that, obviously, the operators will have some challenges. And us having 
delivery in our DNA from, from day one over 60 years ago, we understand that the abortion delivery and how to run operation, uh, operations. So we've, through these difficult times where, as Misha said, uh, we're facing some headwinds with, with the availability of labor, we've still been able to reduce our delivery times to customers. And Mr. Mullen's busy vision um, 60 plus years ago was already that if we deliver quickly to customers, we'll grow cohorts of frequent customers, of um, um, which we're also seeing in these current times. Key strategy for Domino's is that Domino's is only delivered by Domino's employees. That way, we control the whole value equation. We control product, service, and image. Um, and with that, we offset ourselves against our competition, which is a key to our future success, because nobody delivers like Domino's. Next, next slide, please, Nathan. So, JH delivery is here and it's here to stay. With the, the opportunity, and the opportunity is big, there's also challenges with the, the, um, the demand of labor being high. And I saw also questions pop up in the, in the Q&A section of how much headwinds are we, are we facing here with the availability of labor. And Domino's is well positioned here since we deliver, we deliver quality jobs and we double down on training and, uh, and on career opportunities. Um, and with that, we keep delivering on the very important strategy of more for more in these times when we're facing inflation. And it makes me extremely proud that it, within Domino's, we've got this great pipeline of people who are actually hungry to grow, to grow the business and grow the brand and build the next stores so we can get, get closer to the customer, be able to deliver that last mile in a great way. And when I was a 24-year-old regional manager, I didn't have the means to open up my own business, but it was the Domino's business and the people within Domino's um, that helped me and supported me to become a franchisee and help build the brand to where it is today. And the good thing is, I'm not the exception, I'm just an example, because there are many, many people like me that have walked through uh, these career paths within Domino's, whether it is within the head office or being franchisees, and that really offsets us against the competition. If you look at the people presenting today, many of us have, have started in store positions. Many of us has been, have been franchisees. And um, we try to hand over the opportunities that we've had in the past, that people gave us in the past, to the next generation. And with that, um, positioning us very well on the labor market. With the hunger for new stores, we'll be delivering on a on a um, uh, on a, a record result in openings uh, this financial year. If you want to go more in depth, there is Appendix 12 to 14 where there's a, a, an outlook for our business. And um, having said that, I'll hand over to Don May. Thank you, Stoffel. Thank you, everybody. Especially the hours of the day that you're doing is that. So yes, coming on to slide 47, I'd like to reconfirm our outlook. Um, that we expect to have 4,000 stores operating by the uh, calendar year 23, 5,000 stores operating somewhere in that 26 to 27, and that these are milestones. It is not the final score uh, that we believe we'll have a network of, of at least 6,650 stores before financial year 33, and hopefully even more. Um, in our own modelling, we can see the margin improvements as we scale up, um, so we do expect to get leverage from the scale as the years unfold. If you come with me now onto slide 48, 
We're also reconfirming today that our three to five year outlook, um, be it this year, will be softer. Uh, the three to five year outlook we still believe will be three to six percent once we get the rebasis of Japan flow through the business. We'll have strong network uh, store openings and that will continue uh, for the next three to five years of nine to twelve percent and that our capex as we invest in young franchisees and more technology and shaping the business will be somewhere between 100 to 150 million. If you come with me on to slide 49, you know, at this point I'd like to take us back to the beginning of COVID and I, I, I remember, um, that when Italy, Domino's Italy had closed, um, was one of the first markets to be heavily impacted by COVID. And I remember asking Richard Coney, how long could we operate if all of our network had closed? And it was in those days that we really quickly realised it was a privilege to trade and it shaped our mindset that we were going to make sure that there was a deliberate investment in our people, in our brand, where we, we bought significantly more advertising at cheaper rates, and in our growth. And you can see over those uh, those few years now where we've added more than 660 stores to the network, but these were very deliberate strategies in the business. And so that's what you're seeing today as we now transition with living with COVID that it has shaped our business for the better. We do believe we're a stronger business, that we have maintained the new customers that have joined our business. Um, we can see from our data 40% increases in the heavy and medium users that continue uh, from an increase in purchasing, as well as the additional new customers that we brought to the business. This is the age of delivery and that, um, and it, that it's for ours to win. Um, despite the challenges in the uh, supply chains, we've been able to make sure because of our long-term relationships that we've been able to keep our menus whole and our stores supplied and our stores are opening um, with ovens and construction. So we're really proud of the work that the team is doing, even if sometimes you can see in the cash flow that we, we carried a little bit more stock to just carry that buffer. So in conclusion on slide 50, you know, we've delivered positive same-source sales and network sales across the group, um, despite the majority of markets rolling some single-year or double to three-year uh, really strong numbers. In more recent times, the Australian, the Benelux and the Taiwan business are the current stars, and just it really gets us excited when we can see that we can add a new market like Taiwan and immediately apply our experience in this business and get such extraordinary traction. Um, the stores that are going to open in Taiwan this year are going to amaze by just the number that we've been able to open so quickly. And well done to uh, Martin and Josh and the whole team. Short-term results reflect the full and partial uh, temporary closures of some of our, our stores due to COVID-19, uh, especially when during the Omicron period, and the reinvestment in Australian New Zealand franchisees uh, with Project Ignite and the rebasing of the Japan network. And I think it's really, really important that when we talk about the Japan network, you know, it's still on a two-year basis up 61% be it that we will roll through a 12-month period um, with with slightly uh, lower like-for-likes versus or lower like-for-likes than, um, than the previous year. The one-year same-sort of outlook will be uh, below our three to five, but we still believe with all of the programs we have in place that that three to five-year outlook for same-sort sales um, is very realistic. This year alone, specifically with the digital platform that we're rolling our third-generation web and apps, gets a higher conversion rate. So we're, we're attacking ourselves where our app already continues to grow, but we're, we're, we're not sitting complacent. We're actually launching new technology, which even grows faster for conversion. It's much more contemporary. It's easy to use and faster to use. Even in a market like Australia, we're still the fastest growth pizza company where we outgrew our nearest competitor by 2.3 times in sales. 
If we come on to slide 51, this year the network will grow by in around 500 stores or more, um, and that's including the integration of Taiwan. We opened our 3,000 store in the last half. We will open our 4,000 store in the uh, calendar year 23 and our 5,000 store in the 26 to 27 calendar years with just really illustrating our confidence with our franchisees' profitability, the unit economics, and our ability to execute despite uh, some of the challenges around us uh, with councils and, um, and supply chains. Our unrivaled ability to provide opportunities to team members to become franchisees, like many of the people on the call today, and then in some cases executives, um, through a shared appetite of our future growth in the strategic competitive advantage of growing this talent, is really two pieces of the puzzle that, that allows us to do what we do. And we're, we're obsessed with that growth and, and growing our people from within. Domino's continues to invest in the, or we continue to invest in our long-term growth through digital platforms. Um, and, uh, and, and I'm very excited about that, as I mentioned earlier. And we therefore look forward to a high performance period in this next six months, but in the many years to come. So at this point in view, I'll, uh, point in time, I'll now hand back over to Nathan to chair the Q&A. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you very much, Don, and uh, thank you to all of our speakers. I note that it's uh, just past 1 a.m. in Europe, um, and so I would like to give my thanks very much um, to many of the speakers who joined us at this time. Um, so, like I say, you're all looking very chipper for this time of the day. Um, we have a number of questions coming through. Just a reminder, if you'd like to lodge some questions, please enter them in the Q&A at, um, at the bottom of your screen. Um, I will start with two similar questions um, we've received um, from Lachlan Costello and also uh, from Ben Gilbert, uh, just asking in terms of the, um, the COVID tailwind. Um, so Ben asks, do you think that now looking at the results, you had a bigger kick from COVID than you may have previously anticipated? Uh, Lachlan similarly um, asking that, um, noting that you previously talked down COVID booster earnings in the base, do you still think there's no COVID benefit? And if so, why are you discussing earnings performance on a two-year basis? I'll hand over to you, uh, Don May. Yeah, thank you, Nathan. Yeah, clearly Japan has illustrated that um, different to the rest of our group, as we came out of the state of emergency where the rest of the businesses continued to grow, that we had had a rebasing. In saying that, because of the strategies that have been applied in Japan, we're a much bigger and stronger business two years on. So whilst we did get uh, clearly some new customers as a result of bringing forward the age of delivery, we've been able to maintain those customers. And so the drag on our same source sales today is largely today the, uh, the drag because of Japan. Um, so when we look at the rest of business, I expect that we're going to have a, a strong half and strong year to come. Thank you, Don. Uh, if I've got a couple of questions uh, in relation to Japan uh, just now, uh, Craig Wolford asked that DMP talks through a rebase in Japan sales, but also references a rebuild. Is it right to see the slowdown in sales as one of a permanent reset? Uh, yeah, thanks for the question. Um, rebasing is one thing um, and rebuild. Yeah, it's, it's hard to, when I put this together in my mind, I think about, you know, just the the long-term strategy uh, of the business. And, you know, whilst there's, you know, we went through COVID, there was a big structural shift through the state of emergency coming off. And we saw that. I mean, virtually what happened is that every restaurant was closed um, and then all of a sudden everything was open again. Um, that hasn't deteriorated. So we sort of rebase. Uh, there's a couple of questions in there that says that, you know, it, you know, does it continue to decline? No, it doesn't. Um, and we're seeing that starting to build again as we go on. So the core of the business is very strong. And we also look at the other things like the operational metrics of the business, the, the store growth, 
um, that was, you know, and all those things are intact and we're, we're very, very confident in that. Um, does that answer the question? I'm yeah, I think um, just to clarify, I mean, your expectation is obviously that, um, so just to, to summarise that, you know, sales have, you know, come down to a level but are not continuing to expect that you can rebuild and add sales from here. Exactly. The long-term strategy is intact and we'll continue to execute against it. So just staying on Asia then for a moment, Josh, um, Lachlan has asked what drives the huge operating deleverage in Asia. Um, EBITDA to sales margin fell approximately 400 basis points, and he says he would have thought the corporate store mix should be positive for this metric. So will the deleverage deteriorate in the second half as the COVID tailwind dissipates? No, we don't We don't expect that to, to happen. Um, you know, we've been fortressing our markets, and, and just to remind them, we've got 47 different TV markets. Um, we've made the decision to sort of fortress these territories, and what that means essentially is that when you take a, a little bit of territory off one store, a, a corporate store uh, in this case, and, and then open uh, another store in between that for long-term uh, positioning and obviously the, to, to go after our 310 initiatives and high-volume mentality, and so we can get that efficiency through the model, um, you know, more deliveries per hour. Um, you know, we, you know, this is a strategic decision to keep growing. So what happens is that you end up with more stores across the population, smaller territory slightly, better efficiency, um, and those stores, as they mature out the other side, will actually create more profit and better foundation. Um, this also means that we, we've got a, you know, got bigger ad funds, we've got uh, more footprint, more penetration, um, and more access to customers, whether they be carry-out or delivery. Um, so lots of different things in there, um, but uh, we're still on, you know, we're still going after the strategy. We are, we are balancing that out, so with a lot more greenfield sites as we open these other areas, and we did change the strategy for our supply chain where we can access these territories now. Um, so you are seeing a, a bit more of a balance come through as we open stores and, and trying, to, trying to let stores recover uh, and, you know, really mature, um, you know, through the next, uh, you know, sort of 12 to 18 months. If I just add, Josh, from a financial perspective, um, the COVID in the in the COVID when we had the tailwind, it really brought forward the maturity of those new stores in that period, and then we've sort of more gone back to you know the the, the standard cycle. So that kick up uh, with all of those new stores opening in that period was 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 very positive, and now we're just more returning back to the normal sort of growth rates that we we expect. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So just uh, staying on uh, Japan for a few more questions, um, Josh. Um, mm-hmm. Moderation uh, from Sean Cousins has the moderation in trading uh, from 1st of October resulted in any decline in appetite from franchisees to open new stores. Uh, and then from Alexander, can you perhaps um, describe your expectations for margins um, as these corporate stores mature? Um, sorry, the first question was I just cut out on my end for just a. Uh, the appetite has the appetite from franchisees. Oh, to yeah, look, no, the, the appetite for franchisees is, is hasn't declined. In fact, we'll have record number of franchise stores this year. We'll, uh, we've got uh, a very healthy appetite actually. And what and what's different is we've got a healthy appetite for brand new stores. Uh, if you can recall, uh, over the years we've had to open uh, corporate stores and then re, and then sell them on to franchise stores. But we're not seeing that now. We're seeing some of our bigger unit franchisees really start building capability in their teams and starting to build uh, stores by themselves, which is a, which is a shift. 
in uh, in the way still growth and the profile still growth uh, in the business. Um, in terms of uh, the, the margin, um, we expect uh, you know, stores to recover over time. Um, we don't see any risk in that. We you know we've got great customer counts in those stores, the operational metrics, and all the hot, all the stuff that we know as a business. Um, and you know almost our IP is uh, how to grow more customers in those stores as we as we um, you know put our strategies through those stores. So um, I, I'm not I'm not worried by this at, at all. Um, and I, I promise I won't just monopolise Josh's time. Um, a question from uh, Alexander uh, Mees and also Richard Barwick, a similar question, just in terms of this, you know, what you're seeing in terms of this trading, um, the, the rebasing, not the ongoing decline. So uh, Richard has asked, uh, was the 12.4% SSS decline pretty consistent across the quarter? Have sales ste- held steady so far in uh, the second half? Uh, Alexander, similarly, it's been a positive start um, at a group level. How's Japan performed in this time cycling strong comps? Yeah, look, sales have held steady and they steady and they continue. I mean, we're rolling over some some very big sales still from last year. I mean, it's a it's a bumpy ride. Um, you know, January and and huge numbers. Um, and we're we're holding strong, and that's what's uh, that's what's encouraging us um, in this market. So uh, I'm not seeing anything that would deter me from uh, you know it doesn't deter any of the growth prospects for the business. As I said, the franchisees are still wanting to open stores. We're still looking to open stores and continuing with our strategy uh, in the market. Um, a question uh, from Peter Marks. Um, okay, I'll maybe pass this one to Don first or Richard. Uh, can you please talk through how the extra week in the first half uh, and the balance date falling on the 2nd of January will impact the weighting of second half profits for each region? Yeah, the, the good news is that because we've now traded Japan for as long as we have, you can go back. Um, and see where this has happened uh, twice before. So, um, you know, Richard highlighted how it impacted the um, the cash flow. Um, but yeah, when you look at the proportion of, of same store sales, proportion of sales, you can just have a look at four years ago as indicative, and and it'll be something quite similar. Um, be it the one variable that's uh, dramatically changed this time, so you can add this as an additional line is the number of stores opening. So the number of stores is clearly continuing to assist the total network sales growth. Um, so, Richard, anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, just just that additional week in Japan obviously impacted the cash flow, but it is you, you're rolling. We're rolling. We're adding a week, which is one of the strongest weeks in Japan uh, with 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 the New Year's Day. So, when when we compared predominantly Japan first half, second half, uh, the first half did have a did have that benefit for that one week of trade. So that will be noticeable second half, um, but then obviously we've got all the other other uh, positives coming through in Japan in the second half. Thank you. A uh, question from Dothana. Uh, with franchisee EBITDA per store falling in the last couple of quarters, can you talk about the confidence in the store rollouts and appetite for franchisee stores in each region, especially in Japan and Europe? Yeah, I think, you know, what you'll see with this last quarter, when it does roll on, it was actually very strong. So, you know, the momentum is still there. Um, there were some um, COVID benefits for franchisees in those previous years that have, that have rolled out. So this is just core operating right now, and, and we expect that this quarter has been quite strong, that we just finished. And, and the appetite is there. There is a lot of stores in the pipelines right now. 
Perhaps, Andre, we could pass um, to you for a little bit more colour on that. Um, Darshan has also <laughs> asked on the same topic, what's caused the delay in store openings in Europe in the first half and how confident is management being able to deliver uh, to the strong second half target? Is there any COVID contingencies we need to factor in? Yeah, I don't. I wouldn't necessarily call. It, I would call it a slow start, but not necessarily delay. Um, it, it's sort of the nature of store openings. I wish we could, could have this momentum of three or four stores every week. It just doesn't work that way sometimes. Give you an example: uh, France in the next month, in March, will open as many stores as they have so far to date, and that's just in one month. So I, I wish we. <laughs> I wish it would be easier to, to manage that in a, in a certain case. It's not, that's not the case. There's two things that do influence our store openings. And what we see is that there's a, there's a, a definite delay in, uh, in getting permits through councils. Um, whether that's COVID related, I, I don't know, but we see it in all markets. We're just getting a slower response from, from councils. And they, there, there's, in, mo- in most countries, there's a legal, limit that they can take, but then they can ask for postponing, and they almost always do these days. And and the second one is in utilities. We see that um, gas and electricity, getting that to stores just takes a lot longer from uh, from these companies, and it has to do with this energy transition where, where we're in. They're really busy putting solar panels everywhere, so it, it just takes a lot longer to get those in, in stores. That's, that's a trend we're seeing, which can be a one-off delay, but norm- normally that that when we keep on opening stores, that will just be the the norm then, and it will we will back to a cadence. But nature of store openings is that sometimes you open a you have a store opening month uh, of twenty, and the next month it's zero. So yeah, still very confident by the way for the entire year. Andre. Uh, let's talk uh, costs. A few people have asked uh, in terms of um, cost inflation. Um, so I'll sum up. Ben Gilbert um, and Lachlan have asked um, Ben's question first. What level of cost inflation are you seeing in the business? Do you envisage price increases? Um, your competitors are planning solid increases. If so, would that imply negative real like-for-likes based on the second half growth of under 3% year on year? And the associated question is, uh, will you be supporting franchisees through that time? Yeah, we don't, maybe in reverse back, we don't need to support franchisees because as was highlighted earlier um, by Misha, is that our more-for-more strategy is a, is a very customer-centric strategy where we're saying that when we do take price increases, it's because those increases have offered more. It could be more toppings, it could be better quality toppings, or in many cases, it's a new crust or a new side item. So if you can imagine, if you're charging three euros or four dollars, for an additional crust, it, it doesn't clearly cost that much, but it's the customer's choice. Did we create a value proposition that was exciting to the customer? And if we did, then we've been able to achieve more with more. And we've been doing this now for two and a half months. We can see it's been successful in the business. So we are mitigating um, the the inflationary costs and not at the expense of our of our margins or our franchisee margins. We're both in a in a good place. Um, because we are a network of 3,200, there will be the odd store, franchisees are in control of the price, where they may ignore and they may try to put up a price, but that will be the exception rather than the rule because most of our franchisees have been following the direction of the company. John? Um, let's uh, talk labour next um, in terms of uh, can you provide any commentary on labour availability across the group and also uh, wage inflation? I mean, how material is it? What impact is captured in the first half? Uh, any thoughts on wage inflation over the coming 12 months? 
Yeah, so I think we start with the bigger picture is that with the age of delivery, there isn't enough human beings to deliver the number of packages. And so we have the absolute expectation that it's going to get more challenging year after year after year for the rest of this decade until automization. And and we can see that. Um, it's quite varied across the market. I would say that Germany's been our epicenter, probably the most challenged. Um, and it's also our biggest delivery business. It's, it's almost purely delivery. Uh, so and it's had the most challenge. On the other side, you know, whilst it, there is tightening labour markets, even in France, it, it hasn't been as big a restriction. And in Australia, interestingly enough, we had the highest number of team members enter our payroll in December. And as David shared, we had those big record sales, which fortunately we had those team members, so we were able to deliver such extraordinarily good service considering. So, look, it, it's more challenging, it's tightening. Our answer is we've got to do more deliveries uh, per um, hour. We micro that down. We look at the cost of delivery per store. We can see um, as a focus in a group that I mean, we've got a really big stance and we can show franchisees that stance of how much they're leaving on the table um, with efficiencies in that area. And that's what we, that's where we're obsessed. The, the most efficient company will win in the year ahead. I think I can also say that Germany has the highest wage inflation um, this year as well with the new government come in that they have actually put in a quite a significant increase in the second half, which we will continue to embrace with more for more. So we've got, you know, Stoffel and his team. I'm sure maybe we can even hand over to Stoffel, just, you know, sort of examples of thinking in that area. Yeah, thank you, Don. Thank you for handing over. I was, I was about to raise my hand to ask if I could say something about it because it's a very important point that Don just raised is the business that is most efficient is going to win. And with our delivery territories being quite small compared to our competitors, and the increase of minimum wage that we're currently seeing in, in Germany, and just to put it in perspective, it's about 25 to 30% increase um, uh, in comparison to last year. Um, actually, it's a, it's, if you offset it against our competitors, it's a competitive advantage because our delivery drivers do more deliveries per hour due to small delivery zones and better processes. Um, so our competitors might take up their prices because they need to, need to balance this off. Uh, and the competitors include the aggregators because we know that they also do less deliveries per hour than we do. Um, so from that angle, we're not going to sit back and, and just enjoy the show because there is still a lot of work to be done. But I see it as a competitive advantage against our competitors. And um, higher, higher wages also means more money in people's pockets to buy pizza from us. Um, turning now to uh, ANZ, uh, Craig Wolford's asked, what drove the improvement in earnings in Australia given the headwinds from Ignite and New Zealand lockdowns? Do you mean, you mean from a profit point of view? Because obviously it was impacted in, in profit, but you're still gains against those headwinds. And, that's, and that was still just even scale. Um, good. David mentioned earlier that in the last quarter, it was, Australia was a tale of two quarters. In that first quarter, we had New Zealand closed, um, so ANZ. And Australia did start softer and then it really closed strong and that's continued into, into this financial year. Um, so, you know, what, what you will see from the Australian business is you will see a continued reduction in the corporate stores because Project Ignite has, and David pointed out those numbers and he can add some more to this in a second. Um, and you're going to see a lot more stores open. Um, in this half and for the calendar year. We're, we're expecting a really big calendar year. And so Ignite, if you, if the way I always look from a top level down, so we had a nearly an $8 million impact because of Ignite and because of New Zealand. However, that the immediate impact was the sell down of corporate stores and the beginning of construction. But that construction, you know, in Australia, can't just happen in a month. It takes a few months to get fired up. You'll start to see that now flow through. Um, David? 
Yeah, look, if we're, if we're referring to, um, to EBIT, then, you know, we did see some impact from, uh, from COVID and from Ignite as we, as we talked about. But if we're talking about, um, you know, sales growth, then, you know, we did get 6% sales growth and a lot of that in the second quarter and, and a lot of that is free. So, you know, we know that we've talked about the age of delivery and you know, the, the amount of food now being delivered through the aggregators and, and, and other uh, means. So, you know, we think that's a real opportunity as we start to, people have been ordering a lot from the aggregators and the experience is not always great. I mean, you know, most folks would have had an experience with an aggregator where delivery times are really long and sometimes the type of food being delivered uh, doesn't deliver particularly well. And we know that pizza delivers a whole lot better than a lot of the types of foods being delivered. So, you know, what we hope is that as people start to get in the habit of ordering delivery, that they'll recognise that Domino's are the more reliable delivery. Um, it's faster than what most of the aggregators are. And also pizza delivers better than a lot of those other foods. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll start to see some of that, that growth in delivery. And, um, and pick up as we come out of, uh, you know, where we have seen, seen some decline is, is in pickup, but, uh, we'll continue to try and, uh, target pickup and, you know, whether that's a permanent shift in the way that people are ordering, whether they just want delivery versus pickup, we will test both. We're going to make sure that from the delivery point of view that we're the, the best value delivery and we'll continue to target pickup, which we, we are right now in, uh, in ANZ through some, uh, some value offerings and, and uh, and if there's an appetite still for pickup for customers, then we're going to make sure we try and find that. Hey Dave, um, some questions on Ignite uh, costs um, for FY22 and FY23. Um, ben has asked Ignite costs seem to have come in lower than guided. What drove it, and how's the appetite for new stores? Um, and similarly, Lachlan has also asked, are you still expecting to spend ten to twelve million dollars in relation to Ignite this year? Yeah, we do expect to spend uh, that amount of money. And um, I think if you go to the last presentation in August on page 44, we, we uh, guided with that $12 million. And I think that is where we're going to come in and around. It does increase slightly with more stores opening. And so this half is going to have more stores. Uh, but it's margin that we're also giving away that we, that we would have made um, that we're not going to make. So it's not really from a like-for-like half-to-half with the number of stores you would have seen an inflated lift in some of the margin of those stores, and that won't take place. But then you'll, we still will get the benefits of those stores being added to the network um, with all the other incomes, that, you know, food sales, um, advertising spends, and so on. So, um, yeah, everything's on plan at the moment. We, we Initially, we probably thought we'd get a couple more open in the, in the first half, uh, but that just really flowed into existing stores, and now you'll see the stores coming um, over this calendar year. Oh, a question to that uh, from Sam Teagers. What should we expect for Ignite costs in FY23? Yeah, well, now you're going to roll those. So, you know, they're already baked in at that point. So it's not like we're going to be adding additional, um, you know, uh, costs. So it's now baked into the base, and then we start getting the scalability of the business as we just add more stores. And as, you know, the work that, that David and um, Adam are doing, um, the new marketing CMO, to, to help drive sales. You know, the Australian sales, we believe, um, can be materially better than where they are for all the reasons about delivery. I mean, this is a business, we wake up every day, we're dominance. We don't think about any anything else other than designing the world of delivery. As Dave said, we're going to go up to carry out, but not to the same relentless passion of our core skill set, which is where the tailwinds are, and that's in delivery. Because carry out by its nature is shrinking. 
and delivery is booming. And we're going to continue to, to be a very, very focused delivery business. Dave, something else to add to that? Yeah, look, we're seeing, I mean, in the numbers that I went through, we've had 58 franchisees have expanded their business um, in H1 and, and then 25 of those by two stores or more. So, you know, there's there's an appetite for expansion. And, you know, now that those franchisees are settled, um, we, we know that there's an appetite for them to, to open stores in, in the calendar year 22. One, one of the challenges with some of the COVID lockdowns was that, you know, our, our construction and development team members couldn't get on the road. Uh, you know, sometimes getting into to states like Victoria was challenging in the first half. And to get stores open, you've sometimes got to be on the road, talking to landlords, uh, dealing with leases, sometimes talking to other businesses about converting their site to a, a domino store. Now that borders have opened up, the you know the leasing and construction teams are, are on the road doing that work now. So we think that that in the calendar year 22 was going to make it a whole lot easier to to get into sites and get those stores open. And you know based on the expansion in half one from franchisees, there certainly looks to be an appetite from franchisees to to get out there and open stores. Can I just jump in? Um, probably the best, uh, the bigger benefit we're getting going to get in there. Y23 is the full year benefit of the sell down of corporate stores. So we've got more corporate stores to sell down. That will definitely improve our, should improve our margins based on, on our plans. Um, just recapping on ignited it, the, it, on a like for like basis, as Don pointed out, it's a, a, about the same, maybe very slightly more. So it, 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 it's, as you said, we're rolling a like for like number, but the big benefit will be Obviously, the top line growth, as as Don and Dave pointed out, but more importantly, from a margin perspective, those corporate stores sell down. I think I know we're focused on Australia in that question, but um, when we talked about the margins in Japan, as franchising grows as a percentage of our mix, you'll also see that margin climb. So, you know, Japan, take out the big burst period there um, where we just got that extraordinary leverage um, Japan should look like the rest of our business if there's anybody concerned about the margin. Um, and, you know, the work that, that Todd and Josh and Ben and the whole team, Japan, DPJ are doing, um, I've every uh, view that it's going to be some strong leverage over the next few years. Just, uh, just staying on Ignite cost there, Richard Barwick has just submitted a question just asking, does that mean the $12 million Ignite costs are permanent, as in won't come out ever? Um, it was a long word. Uh, so, you know, we do share in a pie and what we know from our business is that, um, you know, unit economics drive the growth of this business and the stronger the unit economics to a point, uh, it unleashes growth. So we're very focused on that, heading towards that ambition that is a global dominoes ambition of 2.5 times payback. Um, we know that when we're down to three and less, it, it really, we see extraordinary growth and that's what we're focused on. So, yeah, over the next few years we'll see, but um, you know we'll be still relentlessly focused to make sure our franchisees have that uh, that tailwind so that we get these shops open and get the benefits. So if I jump in, yeah, there's an ongoing element to it, but there is a, a big part of it incentivising store openings in Victoria and South Australia. So over time, those those incentives, those waivers will come off. So, but um, you know, we might, as Don pointed out, we've. <laughs> We may continue that if we if, if we want to continue to drive those openings. So it's a, it's it, it's a positive either way. 
Thank you for that. Uh, Peter Drew has asked, excluding the 19 corporate sales, how many stores transacted uh, during the period in ANZ? And also, you flagged record organic new store openings in ANZ in calendar year 22. What's the current record, and what should we expect in terms of first half, second half split? Have you done? Yeah, so um, the as far as the, um, the the second part of the question goes, I think the record um, organic stores is is 67. Um, and, you know, we're, we're hoping to exceed that in the calendar year. As far as first half versus second half, probably an even sort of split, possibly more of the second half, just, you know, given that my comments before about the leasing team getting on the road and finding sites, um, we'll probably see slightly more in the second half, but reasonably even spread across the two halves of the year. And, and just sorry, Nathan, but the first part of the question, just repeat that for me. Uh, the number of, uh, we, we said there was 19 corporate stores transacted, but you've mentioned, obviously, a number of franchisees um, who've expanded their business. Um, do you have a number of stores that are actually transacted during that period? Thank you. Uh, look, don't have that number to hand right now, but we know that uh, 58 uh, franchisees expanded their business in H1 and 25 of those by two or more. So, you know, if you quickly do the sums on that, that works out to, um, you know, to around 70 plus of uh, franchisees who, um, who are expanding their business and, and transacting stores. But um, I don't know that we've, we've we've got the number on exactly the, the number of stores. I've actually got the number. It's uh, 98 in total transactions. Um, and, you know, that you saw the stores, the corporate stores come down, but we also acquired the um, franchisees as well. So, that was uh, a relatively large number of 22. So we did actually sell down more than the 19 uh, corporate stores. So in total, 98 transactions. A lot of tr- franchisees, as, as, as David's pointed out, there's 52 of them transacting between themselves. And uh, so that's a refresh of the system predominantly. Dave can cover off on that. But yeah, they're the numbers if you want them. Yeah, thanks, Richard. And, and I think I commented in um, in my part of the presentation about the nature of who those franchisees are. So what we're finding is that our our better performing franchisees are keen to expand. And in many cases, um, I think most folks know that we have an A, B and F rating on our franchisees. And what we're finding is that the A and B franchisees are tending to buy out the F franchisees. So, you know, we're hopeful that with those stores that are transacted that we'll start to see some improvement in results, sales and profitability because there's a there's a quality franchisee operating it. And, of course, the, the comment about the, the one-store franchisee growth, we're seeing a lot of manager-to-franchisee stories being repeated. Um, quite often, those managers are managers that are working for a franchisee, have seen their franchisee success and, and, and want to mirror that going forward. So, you know, we're, we're hopeful that those franchisees will, will be strong A&B franchisees in the future. Uh, Don, I've had a question from uh, both uh, Sam and Ben. Um, any update regarding M&A? Where are you at? It sounded imminent at the strategy day. Did anything change uh, with respect to your plans? And uh, are you in advanced stages? I-, I am surprised neither has asked if you can give a full list, but I'm sure that's on the list of questions as well. <laughs> yeah, look, we've never been more active and, uh, and, and there's never been more work going on in this space. Um, but like all these things, it's opportunistic and we've got to get them over the line. So um, we've been approved. For a the you know highest number of markets that we've been approved for to be ongoing at the moment, and so we're hopeful, but we just can't guarantee it until we get them across the line. Um, so yeah, that, that's a 
And, and you can see, I mean, we, we're so impressed with what the team have done with Taiwan. It just, once again, you know, the market hits. We know our three core strengths. We run at those strengths and the business just lights up. And, uh, and, you know, I think our, our forecast for the whole year is going to be four or five stores and it's going to be a big number. But so it is, you know, it's incredible. And franchisees are excited because many of them had long tenure. And that's what a lot of these businesses, there's franchises or there's managers in that business or sometimes franchises long tenure. And then once we light it up with things they haven't had, bang, there's a, there's a quick shift to move to stores. So watch Taiwan as an example of what we can do in the, uh, in the year ahead if we're fortunate enough to get an acquisition or two. As a follow up, Sam hasn't asked for a list, but he has um, asked, would you expect to announce M&A before the August result? <laughs> uh, look, we're always hopeful, but we can't promise it, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, just um, staying on um, M&A to an extent, um, just, uh, could you discuss expectations around the put and call arrangement for the German business since you have the right to assume control in 2023? Yeah, I'll hand over to Richard on this one. Um, that will be in January 23, as you said. Um, Richard, some more colour there. Uh, so Richard, some audio issues, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, look, it, it's, we have we, we have the right at that point, one one January twenty three to uh, to exercise, and uh, yeah, as you can imagine, that's that is our plan. It's as simple as that. Was that was there more to the question? No, I think uh, that that covers it. Um, just um, from Ben Gilbert in terms of pricing and inflation, um, Ben says, I, I struggle to see how you can't take price in markets such as EU with such material increases in energy and labour. Will this not crunch margin or do you think the share opportunity is big enough to offset this? Yeah, I'll, I'll hand over Andre and some of the other, uh, you know, maybe even Misha because he's been really successful in that area, is that we are taking um, price but we're doing it by giving the customer more when we take that price. So it's really, really clear that the customer has to win. It's a, we don't want it to be a, a, a lose to the customer. That's never been the Domino's model. Value is the name of the game for us. There's a huge opportunity to take share here. So we are taking price movement, but it's with more. I don't know if there's any other examples we want to use, Andre or Misha or Andrew. Well, I think we've been able to um, set expectations for our franchisees, which uh, made it clear in advance for a year what they could expect, and therefore they were also um, uh, really um, open to, to, as you say, deliver more for more. And with becoming more efficient, we save material on, on our cost side as well. And we have proven uh, to be right here with offering... Um, uh, a bigger crust for for a little higher price. We've been adding margin and we've been adding uh, value for our customers. And uh, uh, I do strongly believe that at least for uh, uh, this year, uh, we don't have to add any prices in order to uh, keep margins up. So, yeah. I don't know, yeah. uh, Andrew yeah. Stoff, if you want to add. But... Yeah, no, just um, a little bit of the same thing here in France. I mean, we've been working with the franchisees and we've... Uh, We'd highlighted them where we thought the food prices were going to go uh, before we actually put them through. And then we've had webinars, uh, training with them to show them where we think uh, we can put the price with more value uh, and things to avoid as well, because there is a sensitivity if we do, don't do this intelligently. Uh, we found new ways of doing it. I think we're, the franchisees have followed the plan pretty well so far. And uh, 
that's proving successful and and keeping us very competitive. At the same time, working not just on on, on inflation price, but on efficiency. So as we take down costs in in that in all the process. So um, that combination is is being shared with the franchisees. And I think we've got a good exchange going on that. And just to build on that, um, it is comes back to the value equation, right? It's product, service, and image divided by price, which is the value to the customer. And if we don't change product, service, and image, and we increase the price, the value goes down, which is a no-go for us. But it can be different areas where we increase the offering that we give. So where we focus on, and I've mentioned it before, is our service times are actually better. So if the picture is delivered quicker, it's a better customer service, and the product is hotter and fresher out of the oven, and then itself already um, offsets a bit of the price that we take. And then there's initiatives in the in the menu area um, that we're rolling out, um, as Don explained, where we give the choice to the customer to upgrade their pizzas um, if you want. And it's been been very successful for us, and it's with the customer fo- uh, customer focus, uh, where the customer chooses these sort of things. And the value to the customer still goes up, even though they might pay a bit more for the service and product that we deliver. Uh, thank you, Nathan. Could I just highlight that a big part of a big part of our ability to be this agile and, and operate on that basis is the investment we've made in our customer insights team and data, and 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 that's been a probably very helpful to all of the teams across the globe in terms of making a call on pricing and, and what we what where we lift the price and where we don't lift the price and, and opportunities there. So I think that investment is, is is really starting to pay off. I don't know if you wanted to add anything on that, Don, but that's a that's a been a I think a benefit in making those investments and, and we continue to increase our investment in that space. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. You know, one of the other little pieces of this um, has been the um, some of our offers that just don't yield properly. So the Australian Insight team taking us through some of our offers and winding out deals that don't add value uh, to, in the eyes of the customer yet deliver poor yield for, for our franchisees and our, and our corporate stores. We also can look into the Domino's network globally, and there's been some initiatives in some markets that we think, wow, that's a fantastic idea of how someone's done more for more. Because uh, that's been our, that, that's where our eyes have been trained um, on this whole value equation. So yes, the greater network strategy insights all part. And I think you know there isn't just a silver bullet. As Stoffel said, it's lots of different things that creates the value equation. So the strategies in every one of the product, service, and image silos to aggregate up to say, wow, how do they do that? How do they do it for that price? You know, compared to anything else in the market, um, that's amazing. Because what we have observed, you know, with the amount of decades of experience in this room, if we get it wrong, we shift people out of the pizza category. So we don't want to get it wrong because otherwise that's, a, that's going to be, uh, you know, a roadblock to this whole age of delivery. You know, it wouldn't take much for people to shift back to frozen pizza when they're spending time at home. And, and you know, that's clearly a, a far lesser experience. But if, that, if we haven't matched that price, we could shift people there. And so far, the team are doing a really good job. Uh, Craig's asked what uh, DMP's approach is to marketing and other costs. So they did rise relative to network sales in the first half. Could they move to align to be steady as a share of sales in the second half? If, if I answer that one, Nathan, just first first off is um, that's a little bit of an aberration predominantly in Japan um, as a result of the, I mean, there's a lot of costs that go into the into those very small number of uh, of accounts, but a big part of that is actually the aggregator costs. And growth of aggregator in Japan has been a big 
a big part of that. It's, it's, you know, whether you call it marketing or whether you call it, you know, a, a, a cost to, you know, deliver to that customer. But I might let Josh or Don explain that. But it's, it's a semi-marketing cost, I would say. Yeah, Richard, look, um, there is some added costs in there, but it also gives us access to um, a whole bunch of new customers um, that we look to convert over to our uh, our native platforms and our assets. Um, so you do see a bit of that, but, um, you know, we, we're pretty confident in our ability. They do contribute um, quite nicely to the to the bottom line, so increasing costs, but we're also getting it in, in uh, through the profitability as well. I'm staying on uh, Japan. Uh, Lachlan has asked, did Omicron provide some short-term booster sales in Japan? And Richard has asked, shouldn't the strength of the business be more about the performance ex-Christmas? That is, the historical reliance on Christmas reflected a narrow appeal of the brand or category. Yeah, look, um, I'll answer the second one first. Um, it's a good call. Ed. It's more for the, more for the, uh, one of the little tests that we have. You know, if you can recall a couple of years ago or when I first started in the, in the role, I was horrified to, to, to only be talking about Christmas and, and that's certainly not the case now. We've got, you know, Christmas is, uh, the cream on top now, uh, not the business and, and, um, you know, we certainly have the right strategy in place, uh, across every single day and across every single month. Um, it was just a highlight that, you know, when we do, um, go after, when we do get things right, we tend to have a bigger Christmas and that shows strength. Uh, in the brand and the penetration and all the investment that we do um, sometimes comes out uh, with some better numbers over Christmas. Um, but we're, we're a solid business uh, 12 months of the year, not just one month of the year. Um, and the first question was around the Omicron. Um, it was a, it's been an interesting um, response by the government here. They, they called a quasi uh, state of emergency, which basically meant everything stayed open. Um, as opposed to what happened uh, prior to that, which was a full state of emergency where everything uh, was instructed to close. So very, very different. Uh, it's, it's very hard to sort of compare the two. Um, we saw initially a little bit of a, uh, a bit of a boost, but that all settled down. As and we, we tracked the movement through subways, we tracked the movement through a, a range of different areas. And it, it sort of just fizzled out, uh, like it did in Australia, where it went up and then everyone just got back to normal and, and carried on with things. So uh, I wouldn't look to that uh, for anything. I'm very conscious of the time. I actually have uh, Don back-to-back um, -back with, uh, with um, interviews uh, following this. So I might um, release Don from now um, and just uh, burn through the last few questions that we have on our list. Um, just in terms of the store opening pipeline, because I think Andre and Josh are quite well placed to answer those questions. So um, the one from Sam Teager is just asking a big step up and rollout is needed to meet the 500 store target. So which markets are going to drive this? Yeah, well, Josh, not Josh. Japan's doing great and making us all look uh, look uh, not so good. But I, th I think the, the answer is just it's Europe and and, uh, and ANZ, and, and Dave already talked about that and. And we, we will have to open them. We will open a lot more stores than we did in the first half year. So Europe and, and ANZ is my, uh, my answer to that. Yeah. And I think if you look at the, the way stores or the, the profile of store openings, um, they tend to be loaded into, you know, December's and, and end of year and then into, into May's and June. So, um, that's pretty standard uh, for us. It doesn't matter what we do. We tend to, tend to still load into those periods. 
So, yes, we will be opening lots more towards the later, probably to uh, quarter four. The only exception to that is Japan, which consistently yeah. opens with, with, yeah. with a big corporate store network and they're not uh, dependent on the vagaries of franchisees and that type of thing. Yeah, fair point. But the thing on the same topic, uh, Ben Gilbert's asked, you've progressively lifted store opening targets over the past 24 months. So does Q2 or Q3 trading and the COVID benefit being bigger than initially thought make you rethink or debate these again internally? Look, for, for, for Japan, I think that's primarily focused on Japan. Um, not really. We still see benefit of opening stores. Um, as I said, we're just going to balance that a little bit with more greenfield. Um, you know, I keep going back to these 47 prefectures. You know, we... Each one of the prefectures have different maturity cycles and, you know, they've got different TV markets, which means you need critical mass in each one of those uh, prefectures to get there. So you have to sort of run uh, run sort of different strategies in each one of those and you can sort of turn on stores in one uh, prefecture to access more TV and, and bigger brand presence and so on and so forth. Um, so I'm not sure uh, if there was anything over in Europe, but uh, I'll hand over to Europe if there's anything there. Um, no, not really. Uh, I, I think you're spot on. There's different maturity in different markets. There's lots of green fields in Germany and France. There's less in, in, in Benelux, which is the highest penetrated market of us. So, um, uh, both, both stories are right in Europe. Um, only the last few questions. I won't take any more questions other than those that are currently on your screen now. Uh, Jonathan Liu has asked on the comment about 405 stores breaking weekly trading sales in ANZ. Will most of these mature in mature stores? I'll hand over to you, Dave. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, look, we, I, I think it worked out to 47% of stores had record sales. So, um, you know, when, it's, when, when you're talking that volume, it's a mix of both mature and, and immature stores. And it, it was really everything from some stores that have been open for 20 years um, at full maturity and, uh, and had record sales. And then we had some other stores, which were a split store, and, um, you know, the store that was the mothership store that had been split, uh, even it had a record sales week um, prior to the split. So it really was a mix of nearly every type of store in the system had, uh, had a record sales in December. Um, Sam Teager has asked, and I'll, I'll cover this one off. Um, when you talk about M&A, are you more focused on bolt-on or transformational deals? Um, our commentary hasn't changed. Uh, we are interested in both um, infill and new territory um, acquisitions. Um, I think that probably covers off that question. Um, and I will finish up with this last one because I think it's a great question to end on um, from HS. Um, I don't have the full name, but um, how are you thinking about continuing to deliver the best value to customers in the next five to ten years? And can you expand on how the most efficient operator takes more market share? Um, perhaps, Andre, if I hand over to you first, and if the other regional CEOs wanted to add something. Yeah, no, uh, obviously that's that's that is the challenge before us, and 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 we we are not just starting to think about that today. That's the good thing. We 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 used to talk about fortressing, and then everybody said, well, "Why do you do that? You're just taking profit out of a store." And no, we, and we've talking about that for for forever because we 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 see this coming. We Domino's is delivery. It's our it's our DNA. I, I think we understand that very well. There's lots of challenges coming our way, and and lots of for us more to find out. But the good thing is that um, said I think it's in the press release. We're, we're already uh, in a really big boat in a in a big storm, 
and uh, and we're going to expand that boat and make it big, bigger. There's there's lots of uh, experience over 60 years with our with our business, which makes us ideally positioned for the next next years. We see, uh, like Don said, we Europe here we're in the epicenter, I think, for for delivery. Um, all the uh, grocery flash delivery delivery uh, businesses are, are are have been here for a while are on tv every day um and really looking at us and looking at our, our drivers and and we still main, can maintain our staff because we just have a we were already thought about career possibilities we already thought about more deliveries per hour so i think um there's no no place for us to be arrogant um, but we are in a good position and we can, and we can do a lot more. It's, all, it's always amazing that sometimes I think we must be the most efficient system on the planet and there's not more for us to do. Well, there's a lot more for us to do and that comes with technology and, 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 and more experience. But, um, yeah, this sums up the, 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 the next 10 years of, of lots of challenges, but I think we're, uh, we're positioned very well to take them on for, uh, yeah, take them on. And I think, by the way, I mean, the, the next five to ten years is exactly as the past five to ten years. We've been focusing on value and efficiency. Uh, that's part of modus operandi for us. So I think it's, you know, we, we've sort of done the reps and we're going to keep repping it out. Um, and I, I just love where the addition of the, the new app is uh, is going to make that uh, more efficient from a customer's point of view, but just, just how that drives... Uh, more customers to us, and then as we continue to store rollout plans, we get closer to the customer, hotter, fresher food, um, and then we get the efficiency. So, you know, we, we need drivers to go to, you know, you know, up to six deliveries an hour, maybe beyond that, depending on where the territories are, and that'll be the the thing that sort of drives uh, the value equation as well as stock pointed out uh, prior to this. So, um, feeling, yeah, as as Andre said, feeling feeling, uh, you know. Uh, cautiously optimistic, but this is this is part of what we've been doing for forever in our business. I promise I'll release you all shortly. Um, Marika, you mentioned obviously the the customer feedback, the surveys that you've done um, recently is one of the successes of this half. And perhaps you, you could give some insight into what the customers are saying um, they're looking for from an ESG perspective, um, given that it's central to what the business is offering over the, the years ahead. Thank you, Nate. We've indeed done a global ESG customer research and, and clearly all of our customers across our markets uh, considered ESG an important to very important topic. So that was no surprise to us. So um, we're taking this into account moving forward. We clearly listen to what they consider a priority. We're now integrating this into our business. And just to reiterate some of the things that have just been said and what I mentioned in my presentation, we do consider ESG an integrated part of our business, also looking forward and considering Mission Positive 2030. Um, we, want to, we want to include everything and uh, ensure we, uh, we deliver on our customer expectations also in terms of our ESG uh, priorities. Thank you so much. And I'll, I'll hand over also to Dave Benes because I know obviously you know your long-stated commentary on uh, the, the importance of this topic for customers. Um, for those who haven't seen, um, there is an introductory video um, that Dave has kindly recorded earlier. It is on our investor website. I encourage you to, um, to go and watch that if you haven't seen it. Um, Dave, I'll hand over to you for the last comment on this topic before we wrap up. Thanks, Nathan. Look, I, I think that, I mean, that comment around, you know, why will the most efficient win? Well, I, I would describe a couple of different situations that would happen in a in a store, both a domino store and a non-domino store. So, you know, we're we're in this amazing time right now of Internet of Food, where 
you know, so many more people are staying home and getting their meals delivered. Now, right now, there's, you know, there's, there's an excitement at the new um, options they've got. But over the course of time, people will judge the experience based on how good that experience was. I stood in a, um, in a, in a, in a restaurant just recently, um, and, and I watched an aggregator experience where it's just rows of brown paper bags. And the person who's responsible for deciding which bag goes first and how quickly and how efficiently does it get to that customer, they're just not focused on that because they've got customers at the counter. They're in a business where they've never done this before. It's not in their DNA. They're not looking at the most efficient way to get that food hot and fresh out to the customer. And then the person who's going to deliver that food, they're a random person who's not employed by that business. They don't have a focus on which delivery should go first, what's the most efficient way to get that to a customer. So they're turning up and being handed a, uh, a brown paper bag of food and delivering that to a customer. And then they go to another restaurant where they have no connection to that restaurant. They're just delivering brown paper bags. If you compare that to a Domino's store, we've got one person who, you know, their, their DNA looking at the map and working out the most efficient way to get someone uh, a delivery driver from here to there. The delivery driver is employed by that store. They're part of a team where, you know, they meet weekly and talk about the most efficient way to get the food hot and fresh to the customer. And I think, you know, if you map that, that those two experiences out over the course of time, that one of those businesses is more likely to give a better customer experience because you've got someone who is, spends each week discussing and with, with their, their management team in the store about what's the, how can we bring down that average delivery time? We, we talk one minute, two minutes being really important to find that saving in the business. You've got management teams sit around the table in their, in their store talking about how do we do this better and how do we find those inches of improvement in the way we do things. That's not happening. In all of those other restaurants where somebody is delivering food, they're just simply not doing that. So you map that out over the course of two, three, five years one of those experiences is likely to improve and get better. One of those experiences is likely to take longer and be less fresh when that food gets delivered. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very hopeful that over the course of time that customers, as they get used to getting um, food delivered, they will then start to assess, well, what was the quality of the product, service and image that I got? And if we get that right, and you know, I'm, I'm, hope, I'm very hopeful we will because that's our DNA. We've been doing it for 60 years. Um, that we will, you know, will provide a very good comparative experience to all those other food delivery options. So that's why the most efficient business will win over the next few years. Thanks so much, Dave. And I see a lot of other CEOs nodding um, on the, that topic. So um, we've gone through um, an unprecedented number of questions. I think, again, um, I'm really conscious we're now past 2 a.m. Um, in Europe. So thank you all. I think it's time for a coffee break before your next meetings. Um, again, I really appreciate you dialing in and also the attention from our um, guests um, who've joined us on the call today. There will be a copy of the recording of this presentation and also a transcript will go on our investor website in the coming days. Uh, thank you all very much for your attendance. Um, good day.